Shalom Aleichem from the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm in the studio with Aaron Lansky. Welcome, Aaron. Lisa, hi. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a while since we've had a chance to really catch up and find out what's happening here at the Yiddish Book Center and in the world of Yiddish at large. Um, So I thought I'd ask you just a few things to sort of start the conversation going. Um, One of them relates to educational programs. I know that we're offering a lot of educational programs here. We have Great Jewish Books Summer Program for high school students, the Steiner Summer Yiddish Program for college students, a fellowship program for recent graduates, our new introduction, Tent Encounters with Jewish Culture. Um, and then we've got the lineup of on-site and online courses for adult learners. And I'm wondering how all of these programs speak to the mission of the center. Wow. Well, I think times are changing very quickly. Can I, can I tell you a personal story first? Absolutely. So just started work on a brand new book, this time kind of a uh, personal reflection on, you know, American Jewish identity and so forth. And in the course of it, I'm sort of rummaging around in my past trying to find precedent for what we're doing now. And I, I remember this incident that it somehow eluded me for some years. I'd just forgotten about it. But I remember when I was in second grade, uh, this is in public schools in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and one day the teacher came in and said, today we're going to talk about nationality. And she handed out these sheets of oak tag. Remember oak tag, oh, Lisa? Oh, yes. This, this takes me back to those <laughs> so yesteryears. Yes. Yeah, so, so we hands out the oak tag, and we had to fold it over the long way so we all looked like we were in the United Nations with this name tag mm-hmm. in front of us. And she handed out crayons, and she said, now I want everyone to write your nationality on the oak tag. And by nationality, she didn't mean American, of course. Mm-hmm. She meant, you know, where you're where your family had come from. And so for most of the kids in the class, this wasn't any difficulty at all. They start writing, you know, French, Portuguese, Polish, you know, the whole amalgam of uh, nationalities that made up the population of New Bedford at that time. Mm-hmm. And then we get to me. And I hadn't written anything yet. And she said, well, what nationality are you? I said, I'm not exactly sure. I think I'm Jewish. I mean, you know, that's all I've ever heard anybody say at my house. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. And she said, oh, no, dear, that's not a nationality. That's a religion. What nationality are you? I said, well, I, I, never, heard anything say, ever, I never heard anyone say anything besides Jewish. Well, where are your people from? I said, well, I, they came from the old country. I didn't exactly <laughs> know what that meant. She said, well, what country? And I didn't know at first. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember. I remember that my parents would always uh, talk about how on my father's side I was Litvak or, you know, from cultural Lithuania, and on my mother's side, Galiziana, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Of course, I didn't know those correlations mm-hmm. at the time, but I said, something to do with Litvak. Litvak, I think it's something to do with Lithuania. She said, well, that's it. You're Lithuanian. <laughs> so I had to take my pencil and she had a, my, my crayon, and she had to tell me how to spell it, and I had the longest oh, name tag in the entire class, <laughs> and I was sitting there, and I'm the little Lithuanian kid. Except that... First of all, my family came from Bialystok, which wasn't even in the country or the modern country mm-hmm. of Lithuania. Uh, there was no Lithuania prior to the First World War for a very long time. Uh, when Jews speak of Lithuania, they refer to the Kingdom of Lithuania, which goes back many, many hundreds of years, and has nothing to do with the modern state. Mm-hmm. And Jews never spoke Lithuanian, even when they lived in Lithuania or ethnic Lithuania. They were a different people with a different ethnicity entirely. But of course, at that point, I didn't know enough to answer any or to say any of that or protest to any of it. And and so there I am as the Lithuanian kid. So what I'm here to tell you is, and answer that, you know, my long answer to your question is, I think it's enough already. You know, I think back then, um, 
even if we wanted to affirm Jewishness as our identity, the world, you know, my very good-natured second-grade teacher sort of conspired against that. There was no room for it. You know, Jews came to America. We were supposed to be a religion here, and the rest of it was sort of thrown out or swept under the rug. And now, the whole scene has changed. You know, we are now a proudly and avowedly multicultural and diverse country. And I think young people growing up have such a different experience of it. Nobody's making them say they're Lithuanian anymore. You know, it's okay, right, it's okay right, to be yeah. Jewish. And when you say you're Jewish, then you're going to understand what it's all about. So, okay, I'm Jewish. So who are we exactly? It's more than just a religion, right? Who are we exactly? And where do we come from? And who are our people? And what were the professions? And what was the history behind all of this? And what languages do they speak? And what literature do they read? And what songs do they sing? I think that's what's happening in the world today. And that's really what underlies all of our programs, is an attempt to help a new generation understand what Jewish life was all about, and particularly Jewish life in Eastern Europe for the past many hundreds of years. And that seems to be a common thread for all of these at different points. I mean, you have a high school student's going to come at this differently than a college student, um, than somebody who, you know, was a they, second they generation. Yes, and they come with more, you know, or less uh, knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. bef- before they get here. But the truth is, we don't really teach our, our children very much about ourselves. There's a wonderful um, exhibition at the Book Center right now in the Ansky Expedition, Ethnographic Expedition to the Jewish mm-hmm. Communities of the Ukraine in 1912. And there's a quote by Ansky, the ethnographer and political activist. And Ansky says, No people spends more time talking about themselves and yet knows so little about themselves than the Jews. Well, I think that's something that has prevailed for a very long time, and it's a showing sight. I think it's time to begin to rectify that. And the good part is, it's a terrific story. I once had a professor who said, nobody could have invented Jewish history. It's far too improbable for that. But, you know, in the annals of uh, human events, the story of Jews and how we lived among many, many, many different civilizations and 4,000 years later we're still here despite all odds and without even a country of our own for much of that period. It really is a remarkable and in many ways unprecedented story and I think it's a thoroughly engaging. So all we need to do is get young people in the door and then the whole thing is riveting for them. I have to say watching the young people who do come in the door, it's amazing to watch that sort of aha moment. I mean, I've personally had the aha moment, but to watch it on the faces is really an incredible thing. Yeah, even more incredible is what happens the longer they're here. Mm-hmm. And it just gets more and more aha-like as, as uh, time goes on. You know, obviously, remember we saw that last summer with the high school students. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading some of their quotes and, you know, comments after they left about how expansive an experience this was for them and that they came at it thinking, okay, I'm going to read some books, but they had no idea how they'd carry this forward with right, them. Right, So I should just explain, this, this is Great Jewish Books we're talking mm-hmm. about, which was our first ever week-long program for high school students. After having programs for college students and adults for many years, we decided to uh, you know, branch out further still. We opened it up. We had 18 students here. They literally came from all over the United States and Canada, uh, remarkably far afield. I think there were two from New Mexico alone. Don't, don't ask why. And, because uh, I don't know that is right. to say, yes. Um, <laughs> kids of really quite a range of backgrounds. About half had gone to day schools, half had not. Of the day school kids, a little better than half of them were from, meaning they were modern orthodox or orthodox. Mm-hmm. And uh, But they really uh, got along amazingly well. Of course, these are, you know, preternaturally bright young people. 
uh, you know, who were selected for this very mm -hmm. competitive program. But none of them, including the day school kids, had ever encountered any of modern Jewish literature before. So when Josh Lambert, our academic director, and Sana Krasikov, the, the writer who was also teaching during the program, when they started presenting stories by, you know, the great Russian writer Isaac Babel, this is all in English, right? Or right. Isaac Besheva Singer, or Shalom Aleichem, or any number of Israeli writers, uh, you know, the young people had never heard of this stuff before. You know, my God, they're writing about us. And I think it just kind of blew their minds in many ways and also just opened up such a passionate intellectual debate. It was so easy for the young people to engage with the literature that I was sitting there with Walt Winchell, one of our board members, who is now, he and his family are now sponsoring great Jewish books going forward. But Walt and I are sitting kind of in the way back of the room trying not to be noticed. And our eyes are like wide open, just listening just to the... Uh, I don't know, the profundity of the debate and also just the, uh, the, the, uh, the freshness of the debate. Josh Lambert told me later, he said, the reason I love teaching high school students is they're uncorrupted by literary theory, which they would learn in college. <laughs> so they're kind of pre-theory. It's tabula rasa, and here we are and present this amazing literature, and they engage with it with all the passion that it, it deserves. So when they come back or when other students come back for the Steiner Summer Yiddish program, they come back with a little bit more... Uh, attitude, or not attitude's not the right word, but... Uh, knowledge, know. I think. Yes, knowledge. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that, that's a great point, though, because what we now have in all these educational programs, if there's a unifying theme, mm -hmm. is that it's a continuum now. You know, we can now kind of turn people on when they're in high school, and then we have programs for people when they're in college, and we have programs for graduate fellows after they graduate, and we have programs for adults, and now Asya Weissman, the head of our Yiddish Language Institute, is developing online Yiddish courses, so you can have on home instruction as well, along with uh, recorded lectures that we put on for, you know, programs we put on for adults. So now it's kind of from high school onward. Uh, there's a whole lot to, you know, be learned here and, and to bring back into the community. Which is exciting because on any given day during the summer, particularly, you'll just see such a range of students coming in and out of here, some speaking Yiddish, some talking about books um, over the pic at the picnic table over lunch. I thought I'd also ask you, there's no shortage of work being done on the translation front following our amazingly successful, if I may say so, um, <laughs> translation conference. Um, it, we've recently launched the Translation Fellowship, and we got an enormous response. I mean, I think we were expecting a good response, but a huge response to those fellowship positions. Um, we're working on the design and production of Pak and Traeger, which will be um, our first electronic um, this edition. Is the, this is the, the specifically the, the translation, translation issue. issue of of, so yes. don't worry, you'll still get the print yes. edition of the regular Pak and Traeger. But, but, uh, this but, is a bonus issue, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We are at work on the development of the translation website, which is another large, large undertaking. So what does this all mean, and how does it impact our understanding of Yiddish? Well, the underlying uh, uh, you know, reality of this is that of the roughly 40,000 uh, monograph titles in Yiddish, books, you know, separate book titles in Yiddish, mm -hmm. and the more than 3,000 separate Yiddish periodicals, many of which ran literature as well that's yet to be published anywhere else, of all that vast body of literature, the amount that's been translated into English so far is something under 2%. So 98% of Yiddish literature is yet to be translated into English. So what does it mean? It means that we're suddenly opening up an entire Jewish universe. And it's not just kind of you know, random literature. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was the literature in which Jews first encountered the modern world in a sustained literary fashion. That's uh, enormously significant and created a literature of such 
power and breadth and, and just, uh, you know, energy that it's sort of irresistible. So when we decided to, you know, you'll recall, of course, for 10 years we've had this quite wonderful program at Yale University Press called the New Yiddish Library, right. which continues now. In fact, we just released our latest book, uh, The Zelman Yanner, uh, uh, by Moshe Kolbach, which was translated by Hillel Halkin in Israel, and uh, Sasha Senderovich, who was a student in our area at one point, now at Harvard, uh, wrote the introduction to it. Great new book. People should rush out and, and, uh, and order it from Yale University Press or even through our website. But that'll all continue. But now what we'll be able to do is train, you know, most of the translators on that project were really established scholars in the field. And there were just a limit to how many there were. I think we had six or seven translators in the whole world that we were working with. Mm -hmm. And as one of the students pointed out, as great as it is that we've been able to put out a book a year for each of the last 10 years, at that rate, we got 39,000 years to go. So, so we got to do something different. <laughs> and something different, of course, was to train a new generation. So that's what all this is about, train a new generation, young people who are full of beans and full of knowledge or uh, can learn how to go about this, who can then begin translating, you know, much of the rest of, or begin at least scratching the surface of the rest of this extraordinary literature. So we needed to find funding for it all. And uh, we received a large grant from the David Berg Foundation in New York to pay for the translation fellows. Now these are, you know, relatively young people uh, who have, I think we had 32 applied to us. At so, least, yeah. maybe yeah, more than that. And we more. chose six of them mm -hmm. for this year who will now spend a full year each translating a full-length work of Yiddish literature. But we not only give them a generous stipend, but we also assign to each of them a mentor, a senior person in the field who can kind of help them out to whom they can turn for advice. You know, what does this mean? Or, you know, uh, just general advice as they, as they, about the craft of translation as they go along. Then we had this plan for this robust website where you could look up words that weren't in the dictionary and get people around the world to kibitz and tell you what they, they mm -hmm. call that wiki, you know, and tell you what it is. You could put up works in progress and let the world kind of chime in and tell you what you got right and what you got wrong. Or there would be a registry of what has been translated and, more importantly, what should be translated. Uh, this was a critical tool. So for that, we applied to Steven Spielberg's Righteous Persons Foundation. I, uh, I spoke with Rachel Levin, the head of the foundation, when we sent in the application. I've known Rachel for many years. She's one of the smartest people in the Jewish foundation world. I explained exactly what we wanted to do. And she said, well, I got to tell you the truth. I'm not sure if Steven will get this, meaning Steven Spielberg would get mm -hmm. what this was all about. And I said, you tell Steven when you meet with him that right now on our shelves are this vast trove, this endless supply of Yiddish books there. Only 2% have been translated, and within the untranslated 98%, God only knows how many amazing screenplays are just waiting to be <laughs> harvested. I think she shared that with Stephen because in the end, they actually gave us more money than we asked for, and we're developing that website right now. We're putting all the other pieces of this into place. And very soon, you know, uh, tremendous amounts of Yiddish literature that have never been available in English before are going to come to the light of day. And the very first of that will be coming out in March with the online issue of Pachentrager for just date voted to translation. We'll let people know when that's coming. Yeah, and that's a very exciting issue. Um, having seen some of what's going into it, you just, you realize the scope and the genres that are out there. And it's just, it's incredible that we can begin to access you, some of this material. You, you know, it's amazing, Lisa. I used to think that, you know, what hadn't been translated was the works that were thought to be sort of, um, you know, uh, too uh, raunchy or too sexual or too full of, you know, conf conflict mm -hmm. and contradiction, mm -hmm. and that after the war there was attempt, an attempt to eulogize a world that had been destroyed, and that's why these works were overlooked. 
I now think I, I think I was wrong. I think the reason all the rest of that stuff hasn't been translated is nobody got around to it yet. I don't think it was ideological objection. I don't think people have read most of that literature. Certainly we know among all the scholars with whom we work, we've all been trained by the same three people or four people that's changing a bit now. Uh, and we've all read the same you know, de facto canon of a few hundred titles. They're really good books, the books we everybody knows. But what about all those tens of thousands of other titles that none of us could really tell you very much about? So there's just a job here of kind of reclamation and a job of exploration and then a job of repatriation to bring a great literature back to a new generation of readers now uh, in English as well as in Yiddish. Yeah, and I think it's so exciting that there is an audience that's hungry for it, for scholarly purposes, for informing one about their cultural identity, and just for the sheer pleasure of reading something that has a sense of time and place. Uh, uh, well said. Yeah. yeah. Great literature has a power all its own. Yeah. And it endures. And, and it can sustain a transformation from one language to another. And I have to say, this is all happening very quickly. Um, these yes, ideas and, are coming and, into play. And I'd be really remiss if I didn't mention the work of Sebastian Schulman, yes. who uh, was an intern here maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago and has come back now as a fellow He's just finishing his master's in Jewish history and ethnography, and he is uh, brilliant and extraordinarily capable, and he is the one who is spearheading this whole translation effort right now. And um, he, it is dizzying how quickly he works, and it's quite a job just keeping up with him. And he's great to work with. So, Aaron, you've been doing this for a long time, and I wonder if you continue to be surprised every day at what unfolds. I mean, you know, I will pass you in the hallways, and you'll say, just had the most amazing conversation, or this just came over, you know, an email or something. Each day, it's something new. It, it, it really is. So you want, like, yesterday's? Yeah. Today's yeah, already yeah. Give young, me yesterday. Yesterday's. Yeah. So yesterday, we had a conference call with our editors uh, and publishers at Yale University Press. You know, we've put out 10 amazing books over the last 10 years, but they haven't been widely available because it was an academic publisher. They now want to experiment with uh, online publishing as well, ebook publication. Mm -hmm. And they're going to work with a, a major new venture, a New York-based ebook publisher, and uh, sell them subsidiary rights to these works. And uh, they have to start somewhere. And out of the 300 titles a year that Yale University publishes, they thought, you know, that Yiddish series would be a really great place to start. Don't ask me why they thought that. Who knows? I definitely didn't ask them. But we're thrilled. So uh, within a month, we'll know a whole lot more about the specifics of this. And I think these books will then become available literally all over the world in uh, very inexpensive, readily, or you have to say immediately accessible editions on Kindle, Nook, uh, iPad, and other readers. And that's just yesterday. Like, you should have seen the day before <laughs> that, you know? Every place we look, you know about what Asaf Urieli is doing up in the Pyrenees right now to develop online access, uh, online searchability through Yiddish OCR, a project that would have taken millions of dollars to develop on a whole team. And he's uh, an absolute genius, a computational linguist who has done this sort of single-handedly, and this sort of just came to us one day. Or likewise, our partnership with the National Library of Israel. I'm actually off to Israel on the 27th of January. I uh, fly overseas. And I'll be spending a week there. And on January 29th, I'll be appearing at the National Library in Jerusalem for the inauguration of our new partnership between the National Library of Israel and the Yiddish Book Center, making the uh, digitization of Yiddish books a very high priority, joining forces. And between our two institutions, we will make Yiddish truly the first completely 
digitized literature in human history. So every place we look, these things are just happening, and I think uh, the operative term here is bachet. Somehow when you're working on the right direction and you're heading for the right goal, I don't know, somehow things seem to uh, come our, you know, just work out in some remarkable ways. And we're just at a great moment in history where a lot of us are all working towards the same direction, and we're doing something that may be unprecedented in the annals of Yiddish or even the Jewish world, which we're all working together, which is really quite remarkable. It is. And I have to say, for those listeners who are not able to be here, to walk through the 49,000-square-foot building um, to get down to our studio, we happened upon Asia and got into a conversation about the textbook that she's, you know, in the midst of creating. It's just you can't walk down the hallway without a project presenting itself. Yes, right. And not just, the, not just any textbook, but this is going to be the textbook that leapfrogs all other textbooks since the College Yiddish of 1947 because it's a multimedia textbook that will be available on the iPad and other devices. So you'll not only have text in this textbook, but you'll be able to push a little uh, button on screen and you'll be able to listen to vintage Yiddish audio taken from the collection that Jordan is processing from the Jewish Public Library in Montreal or watch old snippets of old Yiddish films or vintage radio or interactive exercises, and hopefully this will make Yiddish accessible to thousands of more people all over the world. So just to bring it back around, that that little boy in second grade will now have a different sign. Uh, the Lithuanian sign can be retired in my case, <laughs> and I think we can very pl- proudly write Jewish on the oak tag now, because, uh, except that's just the starting point. Then we have to figure out what it all means, and that's a lifetime work for all of us. Thank you for joining us um, today. Appreciate it, and uh, I'll let you get back to all of the many things that you need to get back to doing, Aaron. Thanks, Lisa. You've been listening to a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit yiddishbookcenter.org audio. Our producer is Agnieszka Ilvitska. I'm Lisa Newman. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.